Welcome to God is Open. I am your host, Christopher Fisher. On today's episode, we're going to be talking about the goodness of God. God is good. What does that mean? Huh, is God good? Is is, is God good? Uh, that That's a good question. Let's uh, do an experiment. Let's jump onto Google and let's type in God is good and then verses. So we're going to find all the verses that talk about how God is good, if God is good, things of that nature. And one of the first, first uh, web pages that are going to pop up is this Dr. David Jeremiah. Now he's a pretty famous guy, right? And he's all, all of the links are pretty good, by the way. They're all pretty good. They'll all give you relevant verses for this. But he has this article, 23 verses about the goodness of God. Number one, the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long suffering, abounding in goodness and truth. Exodus 34, 6. Scrolling down, oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good for his mercy endures forever. 1 Chronicles 16, 34. How about and they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks, for he is good, for his mercy endears forever towards Israel. Ezra 3.11, good and upright is the Lord. Psalms 25.8. You get the idea. There's, there's like 20 more verses just like this in which God's goodness is praised. God is good. God is righteous. His, all his ways are perfect. How about this? No one is good but one that is God. This is Jesus talking. Mark 10, 18. This is throughout the Bible. This refrain comes over and over again in the Bible, everywhere. God is good. So what would you do if I told you there's three different ways to take these verses? And the first way is, of course, the Augustinian way, the Platonic way, in which anytime the Bible talks about God's attributes, these attributes are inherent in God and they must be the same thing as God because God is simple and so he must have some sort of nature which is unchanging and th that nature is goodness. Turning to Augustine on the good, he writes this, the highest good, that which there is no higher is God and consequently he is unchangeably good, hence truly eternal and truly immortal because you know if, if you're changeable and you're not immortal and all other good things are only from him, not of him. For what is of him is himself, and consequently, if he alone is unchangeable, all things he has made, because he has made them out of nothing, are changeable, for he is omnipotent. Anyways, you kind of get the idea of Augustine's mindset that uh, God is in his nature good, that this is, this is an inherent attribute. The attribute that we're all familiar with is impeccability. This is an attribute that claims not only does God not sin, but God cannot sin. There's no way, there's no way that God possibly could sin impeccability. And people will also take this attribute and apply it to Jesus. Jesus is impeccable, meaning not only does he not sin, but he can't sin. And then they'll use proof texts, proof texts like, we've already read about how God is good or God doesn't sin. These are their proof texts for God cannot sin, that God does not sin. You start talking to these people about anything that's ever happened in the Bible and uh, they, they will take the position that you can't say anything negative about anything God has ever done because that calls into question his fundamental nature, character, and everything has to be reinterpreted in the light of goodness. Uh, these people exist, they're out there. A lot of them follow Finianism or uh, moral government theology, and they want to reinterpret everything God does such that it sounds nicer, that you, you don't attribute anything that they don't like or they don't associate with uh, love or goodness. They don't want you to associate anything uh, mean. If you say God is ever vindictive, they'll get mad. 
That's not something they associate with goodness. Therefore, because they think God by his nature is good, there's no room for any qualities that we might take negatively. But I said there's three different ways to take these verses. These, these verses don't necessarily, they're probably not, in fact, because the ancient Semites, they didn't think in terms of, of us moderns. They didn't they weren't looking for the metaphysics of God. They weren't looking for what substance is God made out of? What what are the properties of God which makes God God? Walter Brueggemann talks about this, Christine Hayes talks about this. I'm going to turn for because I quote Walter Brueggemann and Christine Hayes all the time. Let's turn to Petazzoni. He's he's my author who wrote the book on comparative religions of all these day, ancient religions on the idea of omniscience in these religions. A cross-cultural survey of all these religions, let's, let's pull up some examples, Africa, Egypt, Babylon, Israel, Iran, Greece, uh, the Slavs, we got China going on, we got uh, Africa going on, cross-cultural comparison of all these various ideas of omniscience, great book, great author, great ideas. He talks about this conflation in the modern world with our ideas of monotheism and reading them back into these ancient cultures where they do not belong. They're, they're, they're not on the same wavelengths. The theory of primitive monotheism is founded on an equivocation and on an error. The equivocation consists in calling by the name of monotheism what is nothing of the kind, in mistaking for true monotheism the savage people's idea of supreme beings. The error consists in supposing that to be primitive, which is not so, in transferring to the most archaic religious culture the idea of God which properly belongs to our Western civilization, that which found its way from the Old Testament into the New and then was elaborated by Christianity. Scrolling down, the supreme being of savage peoples is but an approximation to the ideal monotheism. There is a divergence, a difference of less or more, between what is postulated and what the data furnish, and all the efforts of the anthropological arguments to explain this difference as the result of secondary degeneration or obscuration of the ideal presuppose the existence from the beginning of what does not take shape till later times under particular historical circumstances. This is the same thing Christine Hayes is talking about, how we use our modern notions of God and we plant them back into the Bible as if those, those authors believe the same things about God. We, we read our own beliefs back into it. The whole theory springs from a compromise between historical investigation and theology. For the former, the attributes of the deity are not contained a priori in the monotheistic conception of God, for this conception is itself a formation, and the divine attributes likewise are formation, sharing in the development of the conception. So this is saying that ancient peoples, they didn't think in terms that we think. We did, they, they, they didn't try to decide what God is, the attributes of divinity, by this introspective process. Instead, it was more rudimentary. It does, just like uh, Walter Brueggemann writes in Theology of the Old Testament, uh, the ancient Israelites, they form their picture of God by taking specific examples of what God's done. Maybe God creates the world. Maybe God leads Israel out of Egypt. These are power acts. They show God is powerful, that God can't be opposed. All the Egyptian gods are smited. They're thwarted. God is incomparable to these deities who can't stand up and defend their own people against them. God's attributes are ascertained 
from the details. The details lead to the generalities and not the opposite way around. This is not Augustine's idea of where God must be the supreme good by virtue of being unchanging and simple and, and that, that he must be good because that is his, is his essence. This is not the idea of ancient peoples. This is not the idea of the Bible. This is the difference between Hebrew thought and Greek thought. The Greeks were always looking for what is the substance of metaphysics. The Hebrews were looking at relationship. They were looking at events. They were evaluating people based on actions. They were evaluating God based on his actions. Let's turn back to those statements about goodness. The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and bounding in goodness and truth. That sounds like a lot of actions that are being referenced. That God's been long-suffering, he's been gracious and merciful, and, and as a result, we could also say that he's good because he's done these things. This, this is a historical reference. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. There, what, what's the goodness based on? His mercy enduring forever. And they saying responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever towards Israel. And this uh, it talks about a specific people group to whom he's actually shown these actions, leading to them proclaiming his goodness. The Lord is good to all, and his tender mercies are over all his works. So this is again pointing to God's works. We know God is good because God does good things. Even the Psalms 25.8, let's turn there real quick. Oh, look at this. This is actually pretty interesting. Look at 25.7. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. So this petitioner is pointing to God's goodness and asking for God to respond in a certain way based on a standard of goodness that he's telling God about. So he's saying, God, uh, this is what I think you should do to act in accordance with goodness. Please do that. Uh, this author doesn't seem to think that goodness is inherent in God's character. Instead, he's praying that God acts in a fashion consistent with his perception of God's goodness. He's petitioning God to act good, which doesn't imply impeccability. It implies the opposite. Going on to verse 8, good and upright is the Lord. So when we're looking at those verse quoting, they cut, cut off right there. Um, I don't know if there's a reason it does that. We're looking at the ESV right here. The New King James has the full verse as well. I don't know what they're doing, just quoting half a verse. But good and upright is the Lord, therefore he instructs sinners in the way. Oh, so God's goodness is, is tied to actions. He leads the humble and was right and teaches the humble his way. These, these statements about goodness are typically tied to who God is, what God has done. These are evaluations. God is good because these are the list of good things that God has done. So I might say God is good because he gave me a beautiful life. He put me in this beautiful world. Uh, I, I'm having a fantastic time. I have all these beautiful children. God is good because of all these things. Not everyone, if, if this isn't a subjective evaluation, not everyone's going to agree. The atheists are going to come out and say, God is not good because he flooded the world. He killed innocent children, innocent children and women, because uh, apparently women get a special status uh, when you're destroying a bunch of stuff. You, you kill women and children. I guess that's a bad thing. Even full grown women. Uh, maybe the children are the, the more important thing here. But they'll say, that doesn't meet my standard of goodness, therefore God is not good. That's a subjective evaluation. And maybe, maybe in fact, they have the right to do that. Throughout the Bible, we see people using evaluations of God and evaluating God's deeds and actions. And not all of it is positive. Let's turn to Jeremiah. 
I like what's going on here in verse 1. So this is going to lead us to our third way of reading these verses. Righteous are you, O Lord, when I complain to you, yet I would plead my case before you. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why do all who are treacherous thrive? So how is this phrase being used here? This first sentence, righteous are you, O Lord. So he's saying, you are righteous. And then he sets up a situation which it sounds like God is not righteous. So what's going on here is a negotiating technique or a technique in, for convincing people of things. You walk up to your friend and say, hey, I know you're incredibly generous. I know you do a lot of good things and, and help people in need. Can I borrow some money? Maybe my car broke down or something like that. Can I borrow some money to get my car fixed? You have framed the conversation. You have you have set them up. You have, you have given them... Uh, it's it's a figure of speech. It's it's a, a, a technique in order to appeal to your listener, to their sense of duty, justice, such that they they fit your perception of them. If they violate your request, then they no longer fit that perception, which you've already framed them as. So they're more likely to respond to your request. He's framing. He's using a rhetorical device here. He's using this righteous are you, O Lord, as a figure of speech as a way to negotiate for God to act to right this wrong that he's identified in this world. Look at this. The world is going pretty not very good for uh, Jeremiah. When I complain to you, yet I would plead my case before you. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? This is a continuous problem throughout the Bible. God is called to account time and time again. This is counter-testimony to the times that God is called righteous and good. There's these evil things which God should fix that are on earth. Why do all who are treacherous thrive? He says, you plant them and they take root. They grow and produce fruit. You are near in their mouth and far from their heart. He's saying, God, you're planting these guys. You're helping these guys prosper. They're wicked and they should be, should be put down. If standards of righteousness are to be kept. It doesn't take very long for Jeremiah to experience more hardship and pain in his life. In Jeremiah 27, he, he gives outright accusations against God. He says, O oh Lord, you have deceived me. I was deceived. You are stronger than I. You have prevailed. I have become a laughingstock all the day. Everyone mocks me. Whenever I speak, I cry out. I shout violence and destruction for the word of the Lord has become for me a reproach and derision all day long. He's saying, God, you've deceived me. You've, you've put me in this terrible situation. I, I've, I've been overcome by you. Let's go look at what Walter Brueggemann says about this verse. From the theology of the Old Testament, in any case, we return to the usage of pith in Jeremiah 27. In this passage, there is nothing of a primitive justification for what is said about Yahweh, as there might be in 1 Kings 22, 20 through 22, nor is there any possibility that the usage is positive as in Hosea 2.14. Jeremiah certainly did not say allure or woo, but at least deceive or perhaps rape. It is asserted that Jeremiah was forcibly, deceptively, abusively pressed into relationship for loyalty towards Yahweh, a relationship in which Yahweh has not been fair, supportive, or constructive. To be sure, subsequent verses of the complaint reverse built to articulate trust, verse 11, petition, verse 12, and finally doxology, verse 13. Jeremiah, in his imbalance and extremity, exposes a sense of Yahweh that is less than honorable. One gets the impression from this lean but powerful utterance that Yahweh is, on occasion, an unprincipled bully who will coerce, manipulate, and exploit in order to have Yahweh's own way. 
Jeremiah has been a faithful and courageous mouthpiece for Yahweh, but he recognizes that his call was a one-way deal with little support or affirmation from Yahweh. Jeremiah has been had, and Yahweh is the one who has had him. One may wonder if with this verb, Yahweh has had others as well. So this is the type of language that our, our Category 1 people, or our Augustan-type people, who think that God by his nature is good, and God can't be anything uh, but good, and, and it's impeccable. This type of thinking that will find this phrasing, these paragraphs, very abhorrent. But this, this abhorrent paragraph, this, this abhorrent language, we find throughout the Bible Job talks like this almost exclusively in his derision of God. Job thirty nineteen. God has cast me in the mire. I have become like dust and ashes. I cry to you for help and you do not answer me. I stand and you only look at me. You have turned cruel to me with the might of your hand. You persecute me. You lift me up on the wind. You make me ride in it. You toss me about in the roar of the storm. For I know that you will bring me to death and the house appointed for all living. So something in what Job said was correct somewhere. You know, take things with a grain of salt, but uh, Job wasn't to be thrown away like Job's friends, where Job's friends did not speak what was right about God. What is Job saying? What is his criticisms? Would he in this moment say God is good? Would Jeremiah, at Jeremiah's low point, say God is good? Or is this a value judgment that's subjective based on whoever's experiencing God's wrath, God's neglect, or, or just... Just evil in general while God sits by and, and doesn't right those wrongs. We th see that throughout the Bible, that the wicked are prospering and the righteous die. The righteous die all day long. While we're in the Walter Brueggemann book, we're going to turn to his statement about how Israel forms their theology. It's not introspective. It's not looking for metaphysics. It's for generalizing based off of concrete occurrences actions which you could ascribe attributes to or adjectives to. You could give God adjectives based on the things God has done or the things that God has said, who God is. Thus, the characteristic claim of Israel's testimony is that Yahweh is an active agent who is subject of an active verb. And so the testimony is that Yahweh, the God of Israel, has acted in decisive and transformative ways. Remember that we are here paying attention to the utterance of testimony given by Israel as witness. This strange grammatical practice serves to give a version of reality that flies in the face of other versions of reality. And most often it wants to defeat the other versions of reality, which it judges to be false. There is, to be sure, a large and vexed literature about acts of God, literature that tends to proceed either by recognizing that such utterances make no sense historically or by refining the phrase into a philosophical concept. Israel's testimony, however, is not to be understood as a claim subject to historical explanation or to philosophical understanding. It is rather an utterance that proposes that this particular past be construed according to this utterance. For our large purposes, we should note, moreover, that such testimonial utterance in Israel is characteristically quite concrete, and only on the basis of many such concrete evidences does Israel dare to generalize. You go from the concrete evidence to the generalization and not vice versa. These statements about God's goodness, I'm not going to go with option one. I'm not going to go with the idea that uh, God is impeccable. There's there's an attribute in the nature of God. There's there's no verses that you're going to find about impeccability that God cannot sin rather than God does not sin. And typically the translations that people try to use, like they'll say that uh, it is impossible for God to lie. 
And that's in context of God setting up conditions, making it impossible for him to lie, which absolutely means the opposite of God's impeccable. If God has to set up situations for which it will be impossible for him to lie, uh, that means that God can lie. That means that God's not impeccable. Their own proof text is refuting their claims in that situation. Watch for that sleight of hand, though. They go from God does not sin to God cannot sin, and then they treat it as a metaphysical absolute rather than a subjective claim, uh, which, which your, your mileage can vary. Uh, atheists might say God is evil for flooding the world, and Job might say God is wrong or God is not good for all the pain and suffering that God put him through in the book of Job. And we, we see it written out. We, we see him doing those evaluations in real time. That is, as these events are happening, as he's experiencing them, he's not reflecting back on them. He's, he's talking about what he's experiencing. So the first way to read it is metaphysical. The second is a subjective evaluation. And the third we talked about a little bit before. Maybe it's uh, prefunctory. Maybe it's an idiom. It's a figure of speech. You're setting someone up. You're talking to King David and you say, Lord, I know that you have the knowledge of all things, like the knowledge of an angel. You know, this is, this is what happens in the Bible. You, you set up the situation in which you praise the person you're talking to. You, 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 you build them up and it's more perfunctory. Adam Clark here comments on, on this use of this type of language. He says, this is quite in the style of Asiatic flattery. A European is often addressed, Sahib can do everything. We can do nothing. None can prevent the execution of Sahib's commands. Sahib is God. You know, so you might just be building up the person you're talking to, flattering them, setting them up. Framing. Framing is what I see going on quite often in the Bible. God, you are good. Here are my problems. And implicitly, implicitly, God to remain good needs to be fixing those problems. It's a call to actions for God to maintain this standard. One thing to keep in mind is that we, with these three different types of usages of uh, God is good, uh, there could be mixing and matching going on throughout the Bible. So we focused uh, mainly on examples that talk about subjective evaluations. We talked about how in context they, they sound like subjective evaluations. God, you're good because here's the things that you've done which are good. Uh, therefore, you are good. There, there might be, there may be some verses that uh, might have more of the Platonistic or the Augustinian method in mind. 1 John 1 5 is a good candidate. This was pointed out to me in a conversation I was having elsewhere. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. So what's what's this doing here? Is this um, Augustinian, you know, prior to, prior to Augustine, but the world was Platonized at the time. So this could be early Platonic thought or mindset, or it could be doing what I think Paul does quite a lot as subverting things like mystery religions, mystery cults. They did not allow the mystery to be spoken out loud. Paul writes in his letters openly proclaiming what the mystery is. Uh, Ephesians 3, 6, this is the mystery, and then he says what the mystery is. He's subverting normal conceptions and, and reimagining them in the context of Christianity for a rhetorical effect. This, this is how he writes. He subverts the local culture. So what's happening here? Is it uh, Augustinian formation? Is this maybe 
a subversion of popular culture? Is it something else? Is it idiomatic? Or maybe we're not understanding that. Maybe like as Michael Heiser talks about how these themes of light and darkness are very Old Testament concepts. Maybe it's drawing on Old Testament concepts rather than metaphysical concepts. It's hard to know, but for myself, whenever I'm reading the Bible, I'm going to default to a Semitic mindset. I'm going to default to any phrases or statements about God not being metaphysical certainties based on what God must be. Instead, I'm going to try to be thinking in how I think that they thought and how all our different authors, our Petazzoni, our Walter Brueggemann, our Christine Hayes, all of them, how they talk about how the Semitic mindset worked where you didn't philosophize about the nature of God's substance. I'm going to default away from that and default to adjectives are flexible, fluid, and are assigned after evaluating the data of what God has said and done. The last thing I forgot to talk about is how it makes no sense. All these phrases about God's goodness, God's righteousness, if it's just part and parcel of his nature, if he can't help but being good, then calling God good doesn't have any real meaning. What are they trying to communicate in those sayings? You don't praise uh, something that's inanimate for being good. It has no choice to be other than what it is. God's goodness only makes sense in the context that he chooses to be good. Otherwise, it's a meaningless phrase that people are saying. What's their purpose in speaking? Anyways, thanks for listening. Comments, questions, put that down in the comments section. Start a thread on God is Open. Thank you for listening.